Western Christianity has spent the last 2,000 years telling everyone they're separated from God. This is Not Church with John and Nat Turney. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome back to the podcast. This is This is Not Church. I am John Turney, and I'm with my brother, as always, Nat Turney. Uh, Nat, do you want to say hello? Uh, no, I'm, I'm good, man. Thanks. You don't want to say hello. All right. I don't. I don't. I want to say hi, though. Oh, you'll hi. say hi. Okay. I am in Texas. I should once in a while say howdy. Or but that howdy, sounds very disin- y'all. That sounds like disingenuous for coming from <laughs> me. So, so Whatever. what up? Where? Whatever. What's going on? <laughs> well, uh, nothing over here except you know, like a, like we talked about off off that uh, I'm sitting here without power running on a generator. So that's going to be super fun. So if anyone fun. hears the generator droning in the background, I apologize, but hopefully that will that won't happen. But anyway, let's let's get to what what we're here for, and we have another awesome guest to talk to. We are blessed to have Jeff Chu with us, and I'm going to read his bio really quick, and then we're just going to get right into this conversation. So let's see. Here we go. Jeff is a writer, reporter, editor, co-curator, and co-host with Sarah Bessie of Evolving Faith. He's editor at large at Travel and Leisure, occasional preacher, teacher in residence at Cross Point Church, ordained in the Reformed Church in America, cook, gardener, and dog walker to Fozzie in Michigan, where Jeff and his husband moved last year. Before that, Jeff was a seminarian at Princeton Theological Seminary, where he worked as a farmhand at PTS Farminary. And this is the part uh, where I'm going to change it from third person to first person, because I really love what Jeff wrote here. It says, don't be deceived. When I got to the Farminary, a 21-acre experiment in sustainable agriculture that doubles as the world's best classroom, I didn't know anything about farming. I had more experience killing plants than nurturing them. But my work on the farm changed me. More than anything else in my life, that land taught me about the story of life, death, and new life that God has written into our creation. I just absolutely love that. So welcome to the podcast, Jeff. Thank you so much, John. It's good to be with you guys. It's always awkward to listen to your bio being read like it's right. a eulogy. <laughs> <laughs> I've never thought of it that way, but yeah, that, that would, yeah, yeah, absolutely. We're, it's like, we're here today to talk about Jeff. <laughs> he will be missed. Yeah. Um, that's, that is, yeah, it's an interesting perspective. I hadn't thought about that either. So yeah, hey, if you wouldn't mind, uh, we do this with a lot of our guests, and they may uh, there will be people listening who maybe not super familiar with with you or your work. Um, but man, just if you could just kind of give us a rundown, kind of the the Cliff Notes version of maybe your story, your journey of faith, if you want to go there. However, you want to do it, man, that'd be great. Just introduce yourself. Sure. So um, I grew up in California, in the Bay Area, in the Chinese version of a Southern Baptist home, which might not make sense to some folks, but if you look at the history of Christianity in China, it does make sense because Southern Baptists sent a lot of missionaries to Southern China. And that was part of the story of the late 19th and early 20th century. It's all the folks who sacrificed so much to get on ships and travel to a faraway land to save souls, Mm. right? Mm -hmm. To convert the heathen. And my people were the heathen. (laughs) (laughs) So I would say it was a softer, gentler version of Southern Baptist. We didn't do all the culture war stuff. So I was somewhat insulated from some of American evangelicalism. And then after we moved away from California, I ended up in a Christian school. And that Christian school in Miami, Florida, 
was officially non-denominational, but really it was my first introduction to Dutch people of the Reformed variety. Most of the teachers at that school, many of the administrators were alums of Calvin College in Michigan, where I live now. And it was this weird little pocket of Dutch Reformed thought and culture. Wow. Okay. Very conservative. Very, very, very reformed. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. So wait a minute. Hold up. You, that that might that might need some some definition. How much more reformed is very, very, very reformed? <laughs> what are they doubling and tripling down on? <laughs> the. <laughs> I think they were doubling down on God's wrath. Okay. Oh, okay. Always a good theme. Yeah, those Dutch <laughs> those Dutch are very severe. And I think they doubled down on the fact that they were chosen by God. Oh, okay. Yeah. And there are a lot of folks who weren't chosen. So what does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So you're you're not just special, you're very 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 special. I like it. There's a t-shirt that I've seen that I really want uh, that says ain't Dutch ain't much. And I think (laughs) it's a very Dutch reformed way of thinking sometimes. Yeah, no, I think, and I think the, that would be an awesome thing. I, I, I might need to get one of those just, just for fun. So yeah, that's it. So juxtapose that, if you would, with Southern Baptist or your sort of kinder, gentler version, how much different? Well, so Baptists believe that you do have free will. Right. 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 You can choose or not choose God. And there was something a little harsh to me about this idea that you don't have choice in the matter and that it's all God's doing, whether if you subscribe to some versions of Reformed theology, which I've definitely moved away from, you don't have any choice whether you go to heaven or you burn in hell. Right. It always struck me as like super borderline fatalistic, right? At that point, what's the point? I would say cruel. What's the point anyway, right? Doesn't that just remove all of the, I mean... It always struck me as very strange that any of those kinds of churches would even send missionaries anywhere. Because if God wanted to save people, he doesn't need you. So, (laughs) except that. But they did. In in that way of thinking, right? The plan, the master plan could involve you. Right. And so so they've worked themselves back into relevance. That's amazing. Right. So, so. Anyway, we uh, could quibble with reform yeah, yeah, yeah. some versions of reform the audio. <laughs> it, it, that, that, anyway. That's too easy a target. I got you, man. <laughs> so, so I grew up and I began to realize maybe I'm not like all these other kids. And that was obviously true if you look at my face and my hair and my eyes. But on another level, when I started having crushes on guys, I knew that that didn't really work well with this theology that I saw at school or the theology or culture that I was experiencing at home. Yeah. And what do you do in these cultures? Well, a lot of us learn to hide. A lot of us learn to keep secrets. And a lot of us learn to act and try to be the thing that other people want us to be. Mm. And that's what I did for a long time. Yeah. And it wasn't until my 20s, after I'd moved to England and become a journalist, I started at Time Magazine, and that's where I worked the first few years of my career. 
I sort of went to Anglican churches when I was in England, but then I stopped going to church because I couldn't figure all this out. And I came out, spent a while longer away from church, then started feeling super guilty about going to brunch on Sundays instead of sitting in a church. (laughs) And honestly, (laughs) weird as it sounds, guilt was my way back into church. Oh, man. And... I found this lovely little Dutch Reformed congregation in New York. Very liberal, very progressive, very obsessed with making sure everybody heard about and understood the love of God. And that's how I ended up becoming Reformed because I would never have chosen to end up in a Dutch reformed environment yeah. after growing up in a Dutch reformed school. Yeah. As a gay kid. Right. It doesn't make sense. <laughs> no. And so I have to believe that there is something, someone somehow out there who has a really weird sense of humor <laughs> and wrote this story into being because yeah. I would not have written it myself. Yeah, but that's I, the uh, the beauty of that is for me. Then I think I would say the beauty of that is that the power of the gospel can transcend even those things. Right? It can it can pop up in these unlikely places and say, "Look, okay, I would have never in a million years assumed you'd end up back there either." And it's not exactly back there, right? Because we want to flatten, we want to stereotype, and I want to say Dutch Reformed people are this. Right. And then the reality of my life experience says they're this and this and can be this too. Right. Right. And so encountering real human beings and real congregations and real beating hearts and thoughtful minds has taught me that there is so much more depth. There are so many more layers beyond these identifiers that we're so quick to use. Nah, that's so true. Isn't it? I mean, it doesn't it just fit? With any, all of these different areas, I mean, we, we want to say that, okay, so the Dutch reform is only going, it can only be this, right? Uh, but I mean, it fits with so many different things, um, that we, that we want to pigeonhole everyone into specific roles because of who they are or what they are. And isn't it uh, interesting how if we take a step back and really look at people, as individuals going on a journey that they don't always fit like puzzle pieces, right? We They don't always work together the way we expect them to. And isn't that sometimes the, mo- the more beautiful story? But it's a harder story. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yes. Yeah. And it's a messier story. It's right? less tweetable. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. Get that in 65 or whatever characters yet. I'm, I don't, I don't Twitter. So obviously that's <laughs> how, how many characters you get now is it 300? I have no idea. It's, it's, it's like, it's more like a mosaic than a puzzle though, right? Sometimes those priests have to be broken in order to kind of fit into the, into the tapestry that you're trying to build. But, um, so how, out of all of this, um, how, how did you come to know Rachel Held Evans? That's gotta be a pretty cool story. I would think. So I was an editor at Fast Company Magazine, which is a business magazine based in New York. And I had spent my whole career in journalism, first in London, then in New York, 
I really, when I met Rachel, when I first encountered Rachel, I really didn't know anything about Christian media or Christian bloggers or this whole American subculture. I was not a part of it. I was figuring out my sexuality. I had lived overseas. It really was encountering a foreign subculture for me. But in 2013, I had a book come out called Does Jesus Really Love Me? that explores um, sexuality and different theological convictions in the American church about homosexuality. And before the book came out, a few months before the book came out, my publisher got a note from Rachel asking how she could help. Total stranger. Wow. Who does that? Yeah, really? Yeah. Not a normal person. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Rachel. Right. And that was my first introduction to Rachel. A friend of mine was like, yeah, she was on The View. She's a big deal. I didn't know who she was. I wasn't the target audience for her blog. And we started exchanging emails. We started seeing each other at different conferences and sharing meals. And 2015, I visited her at her home uh, in Dayton, Tennessee. And that was when I learned how unusual it was for people to show up for one another. Like for me, the way I was brought up, yeah, if you're in within like a four or six hour radius of a a person you consider to be a friend, you reach out to them and, and you say, can we have a meal together? And here was a woman who had achieved some significance in the Christian blogging and writing world. And she said she could count on one hand the number of people who had ever been to her hometown or expressed any desire to. And I think, honestly, that helped solidify our friendship, that I showed up at her front door and got to see the town where she had spent her life from the age of 14 onward. And it delighted her somehow that I was willing to spend 24 hours with her and her husband in their home. Wow. Yeah. So the power of the power of showing up, the power of showing up. I love that uh, because I'm pretty sure that's the way uh, I'm listening to. I'm listening to this book is called wholehearted faith, right? Yep. Did I get that right? And, um, it's this, uh, a collection of essays that um, Rachel had started prior to her death. And then you, I believe, came along and, and helped to finish it out. Is that correct? Yeah. Okay. So her husband asked me to take what she had started and bring it to completion. First of all, that's a, that's a big ask, right? I mean, that's, that seems to me like that would have been like a, like a, like it's an obvious yes, but also, oof, <laughs> right? It's a lot. On so many levels, right? Because Rachel had such a distinct voice, had such a huge following. Who wants to come along and mess with that? Who wants to risk that ridiculous band of fans who believe that they know her voice like they know their best friend's voice and will be able to spot an imposter within... I don't know, a paragraph. But for me personally, beyond her renown, she was my friend. And it hurts to sit down every day at your computer knowing that 
every sentence that you write is yet another confirmation that you're never going to see your friend again in this life. Yeah. Because if she were here, I wouldn't have to do the work. No. Wow. I can't, I can't imagine. I mean, that's that as I was, I actually, I was telling somebody this morning and I think I even posted on Facebook, I was listening to this book, but I said I was listening through intermittent tears and it was, it was, it was the heartbreak of the, the realization of the loss, you know what I mean? I mean, like, and I didn't know Rachel at all, um, just through her work and, uh, and still sense that loss pretty deeply. And then I kind of put myself in your shoes a little bit and I wondered what that must be like, like that must be difficult. Um, but also I wonder if there was a certain amount of joy that you found in the, in the midst of that process. Cause he, cause reading through her stuff, I, one thing that always struck me about Rachel is her, her, her sense of humor sneaky. Like she just like, she'll be writing something and it's pretty serious. And all of a sudden she just sneaks something quirky in there and you go, oh man, okay. <laughs> That's, it's just, her voice was so, so, so unique. So did you have that? And it's a beautiful act of writing. It's, it's the craftsmanship of the writing, yeah, right? Because she's writing about some heavy and difficult stuff. She's asking people or inviting people to unpack some of their spiritual trauma or re-examine the environments often painful that they grew up in. And you can see when you step back and analyze her work, she's not just throwing a joke in or a witty line in as a throwaway. There's a purpose for it. Yeah. When she makes you laugh, it's because she knows you need a break from the crying. Yeah. Yeah. So it's daunting to try to not just follow after someone who's so skilled at their craft, but actually emulate yeah. and imitate, right? right. And complete yeah. someone's work in that way. Yeah, I, I know of only a handful of people who have been asked to take on the work of someone who has passed. And um, it's a remarkable thing, first, I think, to be asked to, t- to take on that task. But then it's like you said to to find that voice that they already have and and work and work with that voice without making it sound like it's fraud, right? Without making it sound like you're putting on airs. And just from what I know of you and your and your relationship and friendship with Rachel, I I absolutely know that there's no there's no fakeness to you coming along and adding or no, working uh-huh. with this. And that's that's a beautiful thing. And I think one of the reasons why it works from what I can see is, is, is first the love you had for her and then the humility to say, okay, I'm not, I'm not writing for me right now. I'm writing for somebody else. I'm writing for the people that need to hear Rachel's voice. And that I think is, is just beautiful. And I appreciate, I appreciate that about you so much. Thanks. I, I, it was tricky because Rachel and I didn't agree on everything either. (laughs) right? right. So there were, Definitely moments where I had to say, this is her book, right, not right. mine. And this is what she believed about God, not what I believe about God. Sure. And this is what she would w- have wanted people to hear, not what I think I want them to hear. Right. Well, that'd be a tough one, man. I mean, that that's, I, had, I hadn't considered that, you know. Neither did I. Just, just, off the, just off the top of your head, though, I mean, about how much of this book was complete when you when you started the work? 
So the actual manuscript ended up about probably 55,000 words. Mm -hmm. And the original file that I was given was just under 12,000. Wow. Okay. So a good portion of this is... Wow. But I want to be clear, that doesn't mean that the rest of it was my words. Right. Because then... I also had access to her laptop, so I could go back and take, for instance, the talk she gave a few weeks before she died yeah. and repurpose that into a chapter, right, gotcha. which was actually very faithful to how she wrote. Because yeah. someone who, if you wanted to do like a forensic analysis of Rachel Held Evans's work, right, she was a very efficient writer in that she used her blog as her testing ground for a lot of her material. So what would show up on the blog would probably end up in some form in her next book. Wow. Okay. So this way of reimagining stuff that she had already written for speeches or for her blog is actually true to her other books as well. Gotcha. Wow, that's interesting. It's it's uh, I'm 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 on the second chapter of this book, and it was it's really funny because. Um, for whatever it's worth, I'm in the middle of writing myself, and I wrote a I wrote a good chunk of a chapter on this book that I'm working on. That sounds an awful lot like chapter two of her book, which is when she talks about her wicked heart. And uh, I have a similar experience. I know I know John does as well. Growing up, and you may as well that you grow up in these religious circles, and one of the first lessons that you learn, sadly, is that you're bad. You know, and that this heart that beats inside of you that you, I think, were intended to always ever listen to and follow to some extent, you're told, no, no, not, not only can't you trust it, it's actually deceitful and wicked. And we'll actually, you know, and then so we learn at a very early age not to trust our feelings, not to trust our intuition, um, not to trust our gut. And I love the fact that Rachel says that that in her family, um, that might have been her religious upbringing, but that was not her familial upbringing. The way that her parents raised her was no, no. Trust your gut, trust your instincts. But I, I, I just thought that was a, a really interesting parallel. Um, so when it comes, when my book comes out eventually, I didn't steal this from Rachel. Um, I, I, <laughs> although I absolutely would. No, now I'm now I'm pouring through it, wondering if there's a good quote I can mine there because man, it was just a really good chapter. But um, um, I don't know. Is that is that similar to the kind of the, the theology that you were raised with as well? I mean that that they pull that verse? I think it's true for many of us, right? Yeah. But I will say, because Rachel was such a Bible nerd, <laughs> yeah, it's a bad reading of scripture. Oh yeah, it's, it's horrible. Cherry picking a few lines. Yeah. Because there are plenty of other places that honor the heart, yeah. that honor human ingenuity, that celebrate what God has done in giving us minds and spirits and souls that long for beauty, right? Yeah, absolutely. So where's the line between the wickedness and the deceit and the goodness and the positive stuff? Right, right. Well, it's interesting because it's the same the same prophet that, you know, makes that statement about the heart being wicked and deceitful is will later on come on and say other things like I'll put it I'll give you a heart of flesh in place of your heart of stone. Um, so but we're not fixating on the good stuff. Oh, no, no, no. The, the negative stuff's <laughs> really? way easier to, I mean, I, I can't control somebody's behavior, you know, or, you know, put them into a, a particular box if, if, uh, if all I ever do is tell them how good they are. So yeah, it doesn't fit the narrative. I get that for sure. Um, and I do love that she follows up chapter two with chapter three, which would be the one 
uh, where you uh, talking about what I just talked about, whether you get a, the heart of stone replaced with a heart of flesh and this, um, it, I'm not going to tell you any more than that podcast audience. You need to buy the book and read it and I'll never do it justice. So. Well, one of the consequences of the Western thinking separating the heart and mind, right, is a lot of folks will say, okay, the right antidote for my wicked heart is my thoughtful, rational brain. And that is not a faithful reading of scripture either because faith, uh, uh, scripture, Hebrew scripture comes out of a Near Eastern culture that did not have that separation between heart and mind. So the opposite of a deceitful, wicked heart is a tender and loving heart. It's not a rational mind. Right, right. But we're imposing our idolatry of rational minds as if any human could ever achieve such a thing. <laughs> Very true. Onto another culture. Yeah, you're right. So aside from um, Rachel's book and Rachel's um, legacy that, yeah, by the way, I, I just love that you're helping to to keep going. I think that her legacy needs to keep going. What other, you, I, you said something about the, John mentioned something about a podcast or another network that you do with Sarah Bessie. Is that correct? So in 2018, Rachel and Sarah started a gathering called Evolving Faith. Okay, that's, yeah. And the idea was not grand because Rachel was maybe a little naive about her effect on the world, yeah. which I think is actually really beautiful. So she and Sarah were talking and she was like, Sarah, do you think we could maybe get a couple hundred people who might have some of the same questions about faith in the church that we do? Like, do you think we could get a couple hundred people to hang out together for a couple days? And so they threw it out there and organized this gathering that they intended to be small. And yeah. they sold 1,500 tickets in two weeks. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and Rachel was shocked. There was not a ton of systemic thought that went into the planning of that gathering. It was more, let's invite a bunch of people that we think are cool and thoughtful and smart and really care about God and people yeah, and throw them up on the stage and we'll hang out. And so some things went wrong. There were some real moments when the lack of thought was evident. I'll give you one example. There was a really painful episode where one of the singers chose the song, Nothing But the Blood of Jesus. And one speaker in particular, who is a wonderful brilliant black woman was like, look, that white as snow line, not so great. Right. Not so great for those of us who are not white as snow and have no interest in being white as snow. Gotcha. Yeah. And that was a real learning moment and it was painful. And there was some relationship that had to be rebuilt in the aftermath of that. So after that conference, I made a mistake I sent Rachel and Sarah, I think it was like a five-page memo about some things that I thought had gone well, but some things that I was really concerned about. And unfortunately, they received the feedback and were like, hey, since you had all these opinions, do you want to do this with us? <laughs> 
Let that be a lesson to anyone <laughs> yes, who yes. ever has opinions. <laughs> so it was primarily that, but it was also their recognition that Rachel, Sarah, and Jim Chafee, their operations partner at the start of Evolving Faith, were all white people. They were all straight white people. Yeah. Trying to share a message of God's love and the diversity of the people of God and God's justice. And it's like, okay, what is wrong with this picture? Yeah. So I wouldn't say it was primarily my identities. I want to be nuanced about that, right? Sure. Like, I didn't get invited to join the leadership team because I'm a Gaijin. <laughs> I got invited to join because I'm a Gaijin who had too many opinions and made the mistake of sharing them. Well, that's uh, that, that, that's that been a lesson I've learned throughout my life. You know, I'm 50 now, so you, you'll get there. Yeah, yeah. Young man, um, <laughs> at some point, you'll, you'll, uh, I think you've already learned this lesson. Like, yeah, don't throw out a bunch of opinions unless you go, hey, you know what? Run with this. This sounds like a good job for you. Um, so Evolving Faith is part of Rachel's mark on the world. Absolutely, and yeah. Sarah and I have continued it, and there are really beautiful moments and really hard moments. We have not had a normal gathering because, what was it, six months after that first one, Rachel died? yeah. yeah. And we had to put together the second conference in the in sitting in our grief, yeah, right. Because the second conference happened about six months after her death, and then our 2020 gathering was in the midst of the pandemic, yeah. And so that was online only, yeah. So our normal has been grief and anxiety and overwhelming stress. And where is God in all this shit? Yeah, fair, fair enough. I mean, that's yeah. Well, and that just sort of drives home the point that there's really, I mean, there's no such thing as normal, I guess, right? So the uh, the the kinds of people that you ha- you've had involved in this then would be people like Sarah, obviously Rachel, um, Nani Boltz Weber, um, some other folks like that. Um, is this going to continue to, to to go on as well? I know you said it's far for legacies. Is, are there plans for a, a 2022 gathering? We're hoping that there will be a gathering next October. We don't know what that looks like. Yeah. Because what is the world going to look like right. a year yeah, from who now? Who knows, man? Know. Yeah. yeah. I mean, in, in the last three or four years, we've learned that we can count on very little. So <laughs> it's like learn to plan not too far into the future, right? But um, And we don't want to give up because we want to dream of the possibility of sharing space together yeah. again. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Well, I mean, when, when Nat and I decided to do this podcast, I mean, obviously, Nat and I are two middle-aged, white, heterosexual men, right? It's like one of the first things we both asked ourselves is, does this world need another podcast like this, you know, of us? And so obviously one of the first things we did is like, okay, we're going to be like really intentional and reach out to people that are different than us. Uh, to, you know, if we're going to be honest and, and try to do something that our privilege allows us to do, we need to use that in a way that we can give other people a voice. Um, you know, we're very small. Is that we don't have any any delusions that our podcast is going to blow up, but we, you know, we hope. But uh, it was very intentional that we talk to people of color, that we talk to women, that we talk to people in the LGBTQ plus community. That these are people that we want to talk to um, because I'm. I don't need to talk to another middle aged white guy. I I know I know my history. I know my life. I know where I came <laughs> from. I yeah. It was yeah. a it was a wake up call though to realize that what I thought was just 
I don't want to use the word normal because that's not right, but you know, within my privilege. And it was, it was a point where you had to realize that I get to do what I want to do because of who I am. And other people don't get those same choices because of who they are. And we need to, we need to speak out about that. We need to speak up. We need to, we need to help open other people's eyes to the abuse that other people are getting just because of who they choose to love, the color of their skin, all of that. And so that was where, you know, that was part of the choice in, in starting this podcast is so we can talk to people who don't look like us and to learn from them because they have so much to give. And there is something really beautiful and remarkable about living in a moment where we can have this conversation, right? Yeah. Right? yeah. Because even 20 years ago, it wouldn't have been possible for us to sit and share the space and then send it out into the world. Right. Yeah. I, I don't know how we would have done it. And so I think sometimes we take it for granted now because there's so much content. Yeah, very true. But we're lucky that we get to listen to as much as we do. We're lucky that we get to converse in the ways we converse. Yeah. And on the other side of that, flip side of that coin is in um, what excuse do we have now for not really taking the time to understand another perspective. It's not as though we've, you know, you might, you might could have, there's my Texan coming out. You might could have <laughs> at some point in your past said, you know, well, I've, I've lived this isolated life. I live in this little pocket of this little community and I just haven't had any exposure. Technology has removed that as an excuse. And then like, just as John said, I mean, the, the perspectives of, of people that, that, who, who are different, um, man, they're so, they're so valuable. The tapestry that, that, that is out there there, but, and, and we're all, we're all evolving as well. Right. I mean, five or 10 years ago in my theological mindset, the word gay Christian would not have gone together. I, I just don't think I would have imagined that that's a, that's a possibility. And now that, you know, the me of today looks at the me of that 10 years ago and goes, I'm kind of an asshole, but there's an evolution that says, okay, there's more going on here than what we've been told. And I want the you of today to have grace for the you of 10 years ago, as much of an asshole as he yeah. might have been. Uh, he, I'll have grace for him, but if I met him in an alley, I'd kick his ass. <laughs> no, no, I'm kidding. I'm joking. I'm a nonviolent guy. You guys all know this. I'm just teasing. Yeah, no, you're right. And I, I, I appreciate that. Thank you for that. Um, because, you know, George MacDonald, the famous Scottish, you know, theologian and mystic is famous for having, at least it's been attributed to him, have said, if the, if the you of today doesn't think the you of 10 years ago was a heretic, you're not growing. And I think that's, I think that's fundamentally true. Um, the only way forward is forward. And so um, it, it's, it's an interesting, um, it's interesting to watch it play out though. And, uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm proud to you know, to have been associated at all with people who have, have pushed me forward and people like Rachel have had played, have played a huge role in that. Um, what, what is your experience with her? Um, when she did begin, I guess to be a little bit more vocal about, um, speaking out for marginalized communities and whatnot, and some of the vitriol and some of the pushback that she got, some of it was quite hateful. Um, were you, were you in her circle at that point when some of that stuff was starting to happen? So it pretty much happened for her full writing career as she started asking questions, right? She was regularly called a Jezebel. She was regularly called a false prophet. She was regularly characterized as 
fundamentalists often do as that wicked woman mm. who exists to lead men astray. Wow. Right? It's, it's definitely a type that some folks gravitate towards. Uh, and it was really painful for Rachel. Yeah. Because all she was doing was trying her best to be faithful. Yeah. And I think one of the interesting dynamics is that many white women remember Rachel as a pioneer on their behalf and a trailblazer and making room for women. And, and so many of them I've seen on social media have said things like, she helped me reimagine what biblical womanhood could be. And I'm in seminary because of her, or I'm a children's minister because of her. And I think that's beautiful. And I think that's wonderful. And I think it is mistaking what Rachel was about if you think that what she was about was just your personal fulfillment. Rachel's agenda, and I think it's not wrong to use the word agenda, was not just to make room for, because make room for implies that you have the right to control the levers of power, but to acknowledge what God's diversity looks like. So yes, she was all about the liberation of womanhood and the honoring of what that looks like in its fullness. But also that liberation involves naming and rectifying the reality that Black women don't have the same freedoms that white women do. And that queer people of color have a very different experience in this country and in this world than queer white people do. And that trans black women are suffering to a degree that most of us can't understand. And our liberation is mutual and bound up in the liberation of everyone, right? And I think that gets underplayed sometimes because Rachel was so important to so many women coming out of white evangelicalism that they can't see beyond their own experience. And if we make that mistake, I think we do Rachel a disservice. Well, it's also, isn't it kind of like just the nuance of language in a certain way? Because uh, I've talked about this before on our podcast where um, I had to move from this point of, and it was a language that was, I think, used within the church and and in an abusive way is this whole idea of, okay, there's this group that's outside of my norm, right? And Jesus teaches me to love them anyway. And there became a point where I had to realize that the word anyway had to go away because I don't believe that if you say, I'm going to love them anyway, it doesn't give them the room they need. It, it it still says that there is some kind of separation between me and say a person of color or a gay man or a transgender person. Um, so I had to get to the point where the language had to change again. And it was just, no, just love them, period. Not anyway, not because, not love them, but all of that, right? And right. Is, isn't or that... In is, spite of. Right, and, is, and that's the growth of our language. And I, and I think that's something that Rachel was was expecting us to kind of move into, if I, if I understand what you were saying. And she was very clear that 
she made mistakes all the time. Right. Yeah. She would sometimes tweet something that was ill-advised or hot-tempered, and she would have to make amends for it, right? Or she would use the wrong word, something that hurt people. Yeah. And that's part of being human. Sure. That's part of making yourself vulnerable and risking relationship. You are going to make mistakes. And that's okay. We can walk alongside each other in our complicated and messy ways. Um, I think she and I shared a fear that many of us who grew up in super strict religious spaces would keep the legalism and the fundamentalism and just switch out the theology. Right. Oh, yeah. And we see it all the time. Yeah, absolutely we do. Yeah. I don't want to gr- be in a world, in a church of litmus tests like I grew up with. And yet we have them. Yeah. Right? So many folks who pride themselves on being progressive have long lists of things that you must believe for you to be acceptable, for you to belong. Yeah. So how is, how really is that better? How is that different if you're just excluding a different group of people? Yeah, I mean, it's it's substantive, substantively, it's the same, right? I mean, it's the it's it's the same old trap, though, that we tend to fall into. And there's so much, I don't know, there's so much that has to be unraveled. And there's, you know, I, I wonder how much of this is just human nature. You know, we tend to be sort of tribal. And so I just sort of, as I, I saw this in my own life, I'll, here's, my, here's my own little, um, my own little, version of this, I got really heavily came out of evangelicalism and really heavily into the grace movement. Right. So this, you know, 10 years ago, hyper grace thing that came out and I found myself in these really, really intense arguments with people about love (laughs) and grace that turned into really not very kind. I mean, there was like, there were people yelling at each other, you know, virtually, I mean, we're online or whatever, but you know, making accusations and, you know, getting all up in arms. And, and at the end, it was a time when I'm like, holy crap, we're fighting about how much we do or don't understand grace. And we've become so ungraceful in that. And I see that happen all the time where you, like what, what you just said makes so much sense, where we, we just trade out one fundamentalism for another, right? One sort of set of like these core beliefs you must adhere to. We just switched them out for different ones and created our own litmus test. So that's absolutely something that is an easy pitfall, I think, to fall into. And we dehumanize people, right? Well, yeah. We dehumanize yeah. them. And it's just different people that we're dehumanizing depending on what the topic is or our hangups are or our biases are. Yeah. And I guess my hope is that Rachel's work and eventually my, my work, my own work that is not this book, will be more invitational, will be more hospitable, will be more healing. But it's tough because this is not a world that typically wants to uphold grace. Grace is super countercultural right now. Grace is really hard. Well, you know, what's interesting is as I talk about that with folks, where you really get the pushback, and and you get this on both, not that there's just the two sides, but on, on both extremes, you know, whether it's the the ultra conservative or ultra uh, progressive side of this, 
when that grace when that grace thing really gets pushed back on is when it's when it's really pushed out towards loving our enemies because because no matter no matter what side you fall on there's still this underlying i think desire for people who have um have hurt us to get what's coming to them and the, so the radical part of grace says no there's grace for not just the, the victims of of whatever abuse but also the perpetrators of that abuse and god's justice sees everything put to right maybe eventually. But I love that there was a chapter that I just finished listening to um, towards the end of the book on loving our enemies. And I just want to get your feedback on that because Rachel said a couple things and, or at least in that, in, in the book anyway, that I thought were very interesting and some, some subtle little pushbacks on some of the cliches we use. But the first thing I want to acknowledge is that she, um, that y'all talked about redwood trees. <laughs> John and I grew up in the redwoods Right, so yep. that's home to me. My backyard was a redwood forest. All right, um, so, so you John, can call me out if anything in the redwood no, section fell off. At, when she, when she, so I'm, when when you pulled, when you started talking about that, I'm like, I wonder if he's going to say this, and you did. So the beautiful thing about redwood trees that people don't realize is how interdependent they are, how they grow in stands. I'll tell you a quick story, and then I'll, I want your feedback on this. But when John and I grew up in Humboldt County, some of the most beautiful country in the world. Massive, massive redwood trees, hundreds of feet tall, right? This, these are the trees we climbed and played in. But there's a there's a place south of us. Um, do you remember uh, John? Do you remember John? <laughs> <laughs> there's a place called Confusion Hill. Yeah. And this is like a little, like a little tourist trap, right? It started in like the late 40s. And so one of those little roadside attractions, right? Um, and it has like the little anti-gravity house thing that you walk in and it's all wonky but they had a little train ride and it was very cool this little little miniature train would kind of like scissor up and down the mountainside and and take you past you know these these different trees and redwood trees are funny because they grow they grow weirdly um they'll sometimes fall over and then grow from grow out of where they fell and they take on strange shapes and so they've named all these different trees that's the chimney tree and that's the old man and that's the whatever so I wanted to take my kids to this place because it was such a part of my childhood. And I took them um, several years back. And when we took the little train ride, about half the trees or more were gone. Oh. And uh, they'd had a massive storm. And so we got to talking with the guy that had bought the place. I'm like, what is going on here? Like, it was heartbreaking. And um, the story went that some some big logging outfit had come through and cherry-picked, you know, a handful of the biggest trees. And and when they pulled those big trees out, when the massive windstorm came, there was nothing to protect the small trees. And so what you br- what you brought out in your book about the root systems of 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 redwood trees for being such a massive tree, their root systems are super shallow, and they they live in these they grow in these sorts of stands for protection. That's how they survive is is their interdependence. And when you pull the big ones out, um, there's nothing to. Uh, to protect the small ones from the windstorms that come. So I just thought that was a beautiful thing. I think you, I think you nailed that by the way. So for what, for what it's worth. (laughs) And look for folks who don't subscribe to the theological convictions that are presented in the book or the ones that we're talking about today. Right. I still think the redwoods have lessons for us. Oh yeah. Because we can see the consequences in American society, for instance, of logging a few of the big trees that we need for yeah. stability. 
the problem is we pretend that we're independent. We yeah. pretend as Americans that we can go it alone and not just survive, but thrive. We don't even acknowledge that we need interdependence, that we weren't made to go it alone. And I think that is honestly this one of the society's great flaws is that we don't learn from these beautiful trees that are right there yeah. in California telling a story that goes back thousands of years, that this is how you survive and this is how you thrive. And we're stronger with each other. Yeah. Well, and that's the, the weird thing is that it's not just, it's not just that we don't believe in interdependence. It's that independence to that level is celebrated and mythologized. So the, and there's the, no evidence that it really works. No, no, but it's, but it's, it's, but that's the ideal, right? I mean, I was raised in an era where, you know, all my heroes were, were Lone Ranger types, you know, if well, the Lone Ranger, but, um, you know, but, <laughs> but not just him, you know, there was Rambo and there was, you know, take your pick of any, you know, any, any, any particular character of a story who, you know, through his own brute strength, you know, or her own brute strength managed to rise above their circumstances and go it alone and, and do this thing, this rugged individualism that is American mythology, man, it's so, so damaging. I find myself as a pastor spending a lot of my time trying to unravel that mythology and remind people that, man, we don't do this thing ourselves. We were never intended, you know, to, to go it alone. Well, um, then you have one person who's like, has the audacity to say that it takes a village. Within, within the middle of this American culture, someone has the audacity, someone, you know, okay, Hillary Clinton, right, says, and it wasn't even her state, and she's not even the originator of that statement. She's just, she's just, no, she just repeating, she's just repeating someone else's said. And, um, and, and she had the audacity to say that it takes a village and it, this individual, this rugged individualism is so, ingrained into this our country that it offended people to say that how we, dare she yeah that we yeah. Dare she introduced communism <laughs> yeah right <laughs> like well then remember the pushback was like it doesn't take a village it takes a family you know and so then they get the family values guys out there getting all mad and yeah um <laughs> It's not. Was this pushback? Let me ask you this. That now that I know that um, there were maybe some places of disagreement with you and Rachel, does she in in that chapter on loving your enemies? Um, the statement is made that there's there's sort of a cliche, right? Of and maybe it originated with a Christian thinker or maybe somebody else, another philosopher, but that an enemy is someone whose story you haven't heard. And I love the very gentle but very assertive pushback that, like, I'm not so sure about that. Like, just hearing that person's story wouldn't necessarily. If I hear the story of a of a of an abusive white supremacist, whatever, um, just hearing their story doesn't necessarily immediately make them make you know tra translate them into friendship realm, right? So maybe you can expand on that. We watch a lot of movies about goodness and justice and uh, good triumphing over evil. I don't know that that has made this society more good or more just or helped us grow in our desire to stamp out oppression, right? We've heard a lot of stories. We probably consume more stories now through our various devices than most of humanity has over the course of history. So just the volume of stories, I don't think 
changes anything unless you have the heart to contemplate how your life doesn't correspond with those values that make you cry when you're sitting at 30,000 feet on the airplane. We, we consume these stories, right? By the hundreds and the thousands. Um, and we love those stories of, I don't know, somebody rising above, you know, somebody, I, I love those stories of forgiveness, right? Where somebody's confronted with, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe somebody's abused or hurt or wounded them and, and they rise above and they offer these, this kind of forgiveness. But don't we always sort of identify with the victim in those stories? Well, and it's almost as if I am good because I liked that movie. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a little bit of self congratulatory, like, Hey, I'm virtuous because I told my friend I liked that movie. Yeah. <laughs> but I rarely see myself in the, in the perpetrator role of that story. Oh, I always I see myself as the off 45 minutes in if I felt too close <laughs> to the perpetrator, right? Right, right. We're always want to be the heroes of our own stories, but man, I tell you what, there might be more utility in going, yeah, I, but I could have easily been that guy. You know, and I man. think that's, you know, when I look at the phrase loving your enemies, I think it's useful to remember that each of us within ourselves contains all that potential for good and evil, but also the actual doing of it as well, yeah. right? To say love your enemies can mean to love the worst part of yourself because that is the part that is preventing you from being fully human or fully gracious or fully compassionate or fully you. Yeah, There's a way, I think, going back to Jesus's original words and context of rescuing that phrase from our tendency to make someone the other because we can't get away from the reality that for most of us at some point we've hated ourselves at some point we've treated ourselves horribly at some point we have done a really bad job of loving ourselves so maybe the healing has to start with learning to love the worst parts of ourselves and figuring out what love looks like in that context yeah and then that, that that sort of bring in that Jungian thought, like that shadow work stuff, right? Where I don't just, I don't just love the best parts of me. I learn to embrace and find out what the worst part. I, I just think that's 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 interesting. It's tough, though, isn't it? I mean, that's, it's tough that, it's, because it, you it, have to stare that part of you that you would rather pretend isn't there. Yeah. You have to look it in the eye, and you have to acknowledge that it's real, and you have to confront the ugliness. Yeah, who wants to do that? Uh, no, not me. I'll be honest and say I don't. I don't want to. Well, um, and as you become as you become more aware <laughs> of, think I need of to, who you are and what and and the and the progression that you want to make, I think inherently you start asking questions about yourself and you put yourself into historical moments, right? So it's something as simple as if I was on the side of the street as George Floyd was dying. Which side would I have been on? Would I be one of the people yelling right. and, and you know trying to make that stop, or would I have been one of the people who silently walked away? Right uh, during the civil rights movement, would I have been someone screaming that we don't want integration, or would I have been someone who stood up and said, "No, this is this is this is we need to be on the right side of history," and then go back to as far as you know Jesus? Would I be would I be yelling and saying, "No, don't don't kill this man," or would I be like the Romans? demanding crucifixion or the Jews or whoever demanding crucifixion. And I think as you start to analyze yourself and you, and that's the part of you that you don't want to talk about is I, I think that I might've been on the wrong side in different eras and you hope 
But it's super easy to say, oh, I, I absolutely wouldn't. I would have been. Well, yeah, in hindsight, I've been marching yeah. in the civil rights movement, right? I had been. I would have. Right. My arms were linked with MLKs, right? Yeah, that was absolutely. Fun. Yeah, I'd all? have been. Yeah, I've been walking across the bridge, you know, in Selma, right? I'd be like, it's yeah, it's super no. easy now to throw out the, the Martin Luther King quotes, right, and just put them, you know, on on Martin Luther King's birthday to put out a quote and say, see, this is this is who I am. This is this is what I believe. But is, are you willing to day in day out? Stand up for the marginalized and, and and potentially put yourself in a in a situation where people are going to call you out. And are you willing to learn from your mistakes? So something as simple as um, actually during during the George Floyd, I had made some statements on Facebook and I was pretty vocal. And um, shockingly, found out that some of my friends were pretty racist. And uh, <laughs> that's never said fun. Some really mean horrible things. And I didn't know how to respond. And I had a, uh, a black woman friend private message me and say, this is, this is the problem with people like you. You, when you get offended or you get hurt or you get stuck, you shut up. And my first response was to get super angry. How dare she call me out like that? I'm, 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 I'm one of the good guys, right? I'm one of the good guys. <laughs> and I had to sit back and really think about what she said. And she's right. I have the I have the ability to just shut up because I have that privilege. And it was a hard, hard lesson to learn and to say, okay, I have a long way to go still. A long way to go. I also want to name what a beautiful gift it was for that woman to have the courage absolutely. to say that. To you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and the act of risky trust that it represents. Yeah. yeah, for her to say, "I think you're better than this," right? Because she wasn't saying you're a horrible person. Right. She was saying your heart is in the right place, but your mouth is not acting on it. Right. Yeah. And I believe you can do better. Right. Yeah. I'm thankful for that. You know, there are, there are people in my history I, 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 who, have, who have had the guts to do that, right? I remember making a Facebook post years ago and it was just not kind, you know? Was just, I was just pissed off about something. I wrote something just ugly. And I get a private message from this friend and she's like, geez, I, I, just, I just, yeah, that surprises me that you would write that. I'm really kind of disappointed and hurt. And I was like, I was, I got pissed, you know, and I, <laughs> it, it took, so I, I'd like to say that, you know, an hour or two later, right? It was two years later. I've, and I had sort of forgotten about that, that, um, that interaction we'd had. And, um, I'm full blown into some deconstruction. I've really rethought some things. I'm really, and that Facebook memory popped up with that, with that comment thread. And I called her. I'm like, you know, have, you don't have any, you've probably forgotten about this conversation by now, but I, I want you to know that I, I, I appreciate you doing that for me. Like I didn't in the moment, <laughs> you know, I was kind of, I was kind of chafed, but, but yeah, what, like you said, I want to honor that. That was a, that was a risky move on your part, but it was useful and it was necessary. You know, I, I, so yeah, I, I appreciate that, it, that, that there are people who are willing to call us on our bullshit sometimes. And, yeah. and, uh, <laughs> you know, it's like, Hey, you're, like you just said, you're better than that. So that's good yeah. stuff. Well, I don't want to, I don't want to end this with, uh, out talking about 
uh, some of the stuff you got coming up. I mean, you mentioned, you know, uh, absolutely, you know, racial. Yeah. You know, we've talked about a lot about racial, but I want to. I, I I don't want to. I don't want to end this conversation without talking about, you know, where you're going and and how you're moving forward within this. You know, I mean, you're a writer too, <laughs> and you have stuff. You have stuff to yeah. say. So, what what kind of stuff are you working on that uh, is that we can look forward to seeing here in the new, near future. So you mentioned when you were reading my bio that you were curious about the farming stuff. Yes. Right? Yeah, yes. And, uh, so I'm working on trying to figure out what to do with some of the writing I did when I was a farmhand. Okay. That really was a life-changing experience. But I have to figure out a way to write it so that the story resonates with folks who are really detached from the land. Yeah. I think one of the really unfortunate dynamics right now, not just in the US, but around the world, is that we have dishonored the land and also people who work the land. Yeah, absolutely. We don't understand what it means to be a farmer. We don't understand because we take for granted how easy it is to get strawberries in November. Right. And lettuce every single day of the year and spinach that looks perfect. We don't know what it means to be at the mercy of the weather right? or microbes yeah. or poor soil. So how do I translate those stories? How do I make it make sense when so many of us, and I, until a couple of years ago, had lost a real personal connection with the land. I'm still trying to puzzle over that. I was talking to an agent and he's like, I don't understand why anybody would care about this. <laughs> you know, really nice guy, lives in New York, probably hasn't picked up a shovel or a trowel ever. Yeah. <laughs> How do I make someone like that care? about compost piles and about the cycle that garlic grows on, which is different than spinach, or the fact that if you grow arugula and pluck it from the soil and taste it on the spot, it will be a transformative experience if the only thing you've ever had is supermarket arugula. Yeah. And that there are stories and generations of them knit into those crops and into that land. I don't know. So I'm trying to figure that out. I love it. That that I'm fascinated just with the the, the cycle of garlic. Now I need to know what that's about because uh, that's uh, the cycle that my my John's and my um, maternal grandfather was. He would say a gardener, but when we were kids, his garden was half an acre. You know, it's like you know, yeah. By by farming standards, not a farm, but by gardener's standards, man, he had a big freaking garden. And uh, some of our best childhood memories were, you know, dinner time at grandma's house was, all right, we're, we're fixing dinner. Go out and pick me some tomatoes and radishes and carrots. We'd pull stuff out the ground and it would go in uh, onto our plate, you know, an hour later. And I remember walking through my grandfather's fields and pulling carrots out of the ground and eating them and just having this transformative experience. Like this tastes nothing like I've ever had out of a grocery store because it's ripened in the soil. It's ready to eat right now. And yeah, it is. It I, I I cherish those memories with with him walking up and down through his fields and him showing me all the plants and how they grew and um, just yeah, that connection would be 
I'm fascinated. I'd, I'd publish your book right now. Let's let's just get it done. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. that means uh, nothing coming from me, but I, 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 for one, am one who would be like, and I, that's a that's a book I'd love to read. So to answer your question about the garlic, uh, I have a, a chapter about the garlic because so often um, at this farm at Princeton Seminary, students would come eagerly from say like April and May. June, school gets out, they disappear unless they're sticking around the area for the summer. Everybody comes back late August, right? So excited about the farm in late August, early September, into the rest of September, because the flowers are blooming, the tomatoes are great, the peppers are juicy. And then folks start disappearing. Because in their narrative, nothing happens on a farm after that you get the first frost and nothing's growing. That's not true. It's not true that nothing is growing in November and December and January and February and March. Uh, Garlic is a rebuke to that because you plant garlic in October, at least in New Jersey we did. And it needs the cold of the winter. It needs the dark. It needs all those things that we've told ourselves are lifeless conditions. It needs that gestation period. And then in the spring, you might start to see some green poke out of the soil. And then you might harvest it in July, but it's still not ready. You need to hang it and let it dry and let it preserve for it to be its best self. And so the garlic is on a different timetable. And it's a reminder to me that there are people, there are circumstances, there are things in this life that are going to be on a different rhythm. Not everything should be forced onto the same timetable. Not everything can be rushed, right? That's what I love about the garlic is it's, it's that reminder that to be the best version of itself, it needs something different than the spinach does or the carrots or the potatoes. Well, and we have a, we have a small garden here just outside of my house. And, um, you know, the first few years, all we did was do a, like a summer garden, right? Because that's all I knew. That's all I, that's, that's all that made sense is like, okay, in spring, I'm going to start planting my garden. We're going to have a nice summer crop and then we're done. And then I'll do whatever I need to do. But then you learn that there are crops specifically to grow in the late fall, early winter that actually rejuvenate the soil and bring you another crop, right? And it's, it's, it's the same idea with, you know, that, like you're saying, that we're on different timelines and we have, there's different, there's different things going on. And I, I see a lot of correlation between, like I had mentioned to you earlier, uh, between this, this life, death, rebirth, and this whole connection to the land that we have lost. And uh, I, I'm going to just echo what Nessa says. I mean, I think this is a book that needs to be that needs to be written and needs to be out there. I think there's a lot of people who are starting to see that a connection to the land that we have lost is vital to our moving forward as a, as a people, as a group, as just a, a very vital. I hope you're right. So yeah, thank just, you for the encouragement. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. No, just in the, in the few minutes you've talked about it, I'm fascinated. I am. I'm like, I'm, I'm not just blowing smoke. I'm like, wow, that's, 
that's good stuff. I think. And look, I'm a kid yeah, who grew up in the suburbs. Like, yeah, we had some mango trees, and I helped my mom pick them. Yeah, I grew some green onions because my grandmother taught me that you could stick the end of the green onion in the dirt and it'll regrow. And I was right, like, right. oh, that's cool. <laughs> like, I, I didn't know anything about farming, right? Yeah. And it opened something up in me working as a farmhand that I didn't know was even there. And if you look back at our stories, so many of us have lost our stories too, right? We don't know what people we come from. I'm lucky that I do. And partly because I look like what I look like, it's pretty obvious where my people come from. But a lot of folks don't know. And they've lost their connection to any soil. And they've lost both the literative, literal and the figurative roots and I think part of rediscovering who we can be in, as humanity is rediscovering some of the, those roots and honoring the good, but also composting the bad and figuring out what new life can come from. You know, all of our histories are messy and complicated. But I think something beautiful can come from them if we're willing to do the work. Yeah. Absolutely. No, and what you just said is interesting. I mean, that's, that means that all of that stuff that we would sometimes maybe regard as wasteful is not wasted, right? It becomes the compost for something else to come out of that. See? And you're just, oh man, this is good. This is a, yeah, you need to write this book, man. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm already in. I, can, what, let me know when I can pre-order it because uh, uh, I'm, 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 I'm getting on the train. Thank you. So one pre-order. <laughs> All right. That's a good place as any to say, hey, we're going to wrap this up. First of all, thank you, man. Absolutely. What a, what a delight yes. it's been to, to talk with you. It's, it, it, it's always a little bittersweet. Um, I, I have, I have such fond memories of reading through Rachel's books and just kind of feeling like a part of her story, you know, even though I didn't ever know her, she still had, she wrote in such a way that was so inviting that I think people felt connected to her. Um, even if they'd never ever, you know, laid eyes on her. Um, but so I'm thankful to you for having done the work to, to bring this book out, um, to add your voice to hers. That's amazing. Um, I'm super excited for the other work. In fact, I'm ordering, um, does Jesus really love me right now? Because, uh, that's going on the top of my reading stack. Cause I just, I need, I need to hear that, that story as well, but we'll link to everything. If you haven't bought the book, if you haven't bought, um, any of Rachel's other books, just go out and just do yourself a favor. Um, start with this one then work yourself backwards. But, um, We'll link to your stuff in the show notes and whatever you've got going on, man. We'll, we, uh, we're, we're there for it, man. We appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thanks for the invitation. Take care, guys. Thank you for listening to This Is Not Church. Be sure to rate and review the podcast on your platform of choice. If you would like to partner with us, visit patreon.com slash thisisnotchurch where you will receive exclusive content such as early access to episodes, videos of upcoming episodes, and live Q&A sessions. Be sure to check out our Facebook group or follow us on Twitter and Instagram. All the links are in the show notes. We'll be back soon with another episode.